0: Hi, um, yeah. Yeah. can you tell us about the uh, Beyond
1: Meat Burger? The Beyond Meat Burger, so basically the plum burger is really amazing because it tastes like like proper meat, It's no meat. It's made of my, mashed, uh, mashed peas, uh, red cabbage, and sunflower oil. oil. So.
2: Okay, I'm gonna try one of those. Yeah. Yeah, me too, please.
0: There you go. And that comes with fries.
1: Yeah, that will come out with rosemary salted chips. Yeah, okay. perfect. Thank you, guys. Thank you.
0: Tom and I went to a gourmet burger restaurant in London, but we didn't get burgers made from ground beef. We got veggie burgers made from one of these new trendy meat substitutes that try to perfectly capture the taste and texture of meat using plants. Thank
3: you. Very much.
0: Thank you. All right, what do you think? Visually assess. I mean, with the buns on top, it looks like a burger. Yeah, visually, see. it
2: looks it looks like a burger to me.
0: All right, are you ready to take a bite? Okay, let's try it. Okay. That's pretty good. That's pretty satisfying.
2: Yep.
0: I would eat that on the regular, I think.
2: Yeah, me too. These upscale
0: veggie burgers are just one example of a big effort that's going on right now to find some way to discourage human beings from eating cows and other animals. There are lots of different ideas out there about how to do that, lots of investment money, lots of excitement
1: is not Macau it's from a plant. Okay, Nestle is moving into the veggie burger market we've been it Made about. you think Very that plant-based not. meat yeah. would be something that would be commercially viable. So
0: there are a whole bunch of reasons why getting rid of meat is an attractive idea. One is the environment because raising animals to slaughter them uses a lot of land and water and it's really bad for the planet. The beef industry alone might be responsible for 6% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. There's also the ethical question of whether it's okay for us to kill other living beings. And there might be some health gains if we get people to stop eating meat as well. So there are lots of advantages to getting rid of meat, and there are lots of thoughts about what you can replace meat with. If one of these ideas could get up to scale and and feed the world, that would be great. The thing is, can we get people to actually eat this stuff, right? How easy is it to prod big groups of people into giving up something that's so familiar to them, so many people eat meat every day or for every meal, and asking them to give that up and to adopt another food instead, eh, that could be difficult. Well, to answer this question, Tom, about how you convince somebody to eat something new, I actually don't want to focus on the veggie burger that's on one side of our plate here. I actually want us to talk about the thing on the other half of our plate, which is these french fries, or rather the thing that these french fries got made from, which is Potatoes. Yeah, this, they are
2: real potatoes,
0: aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> I, hope, I hope they're real potatoes. I guess we'll find this out when we take good. a bite. Good fries. Yeah. <laughs> from Slate, I'm Seth Stevenson. And from The
2: Economist, I'm Tom Standage. Welcome to The Secret History of the Future.
0: Consider the potato. The potato is ubiquitous these days. You've got French fries, potato chips, mashed potatoes, baked potatoes. Potatoes have spread all over the earth at this point, but it wasn't always this way. For a long time, the potato was hidden away in South America, not yet discovered by the rest of the world. For thousands of years, Europeans didn't even know that the potato existed. And it's maybe not a coincidence that many of those potato-less years in Europe were very lean
2: years. Famines were quite common in Europe uh, throughout the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. And the staple food of Europe for hundreds of years, for thousands of years, had been cereal grains, so in particular wheat, oats, barley. And these crops, they just often failed. The harvest would fail, and that would lead to disaster. And even in good times, they weren't particularly efficient in terms of the number of calories that they yielded versus the amount of acres it took to grow them and the amount of effort it took to grow them.
0: Hunger was the major issue for poor people in Europe. A very large part of their thinking was about food, about where their meals would come from. Feeding themselves and their families was easily their biggest expense and their biggest
2: source of stress. And they would often have riots if there wasn't enough food to go around. So there's a famous remark that, you know, how does the Roman emperor keep order? Through bread and circuses, through giving away free bread and putting on circuses. And then later on, you know, things like the French Revolution. People were rioting because there wasn't enough bread to go around. And Marie Antoinette, the queen, is supposed to have said, well, if they can't have bread, why don't they eat cake?
0: So Europe was frequently starving. But there was a savior waiting out there, a superhero food that could rescue Europe from its hunger. The potato was efficient and nutritious, and it had the potential to feed millions of people. But it
2: was waiting for Europe to find it. Spanish explorers were the first Europeans to encounter the potato in South America in the 1530s when they were conquering the Inca Empire. And potatoes seem to have made it to the Canary Islands, just off the west coast of Africa, in the 1560s. And by the 1570s, they show up in Spain. And they seem to have spread to the rest of Europe from there,
0: But even though the potato had arrived on Europe's shores, it wasn't a big hit at first. People were wary of it. It was this lumpy, unattractive thing. And all sorts of fears and suspicions sprung up around it.
4: And people say, what is this terrible food? It's not fit for humans. It's going to give us leprosy. It's awful. It's disgusting. Nobody could like that. It's not appetizing.
0: This is the food writer B. Wilson.
4: I mean, one of the stories I like, there was a man called Count Rumford who invented a soup that was meant to cure the poverty of the world, and it included potatoes. But at that point, this is late 18th century, the the poor of Germany was so resistant to the idea of potatoes that he had to disguise the fact from them that the soup contained potatoes and was even said to have cooked it behind a screen.
2: So there were various reasons that Europeans didn't want to eat potatoes. There were clergymen who said you shouldn't eat them because they don't appear in the Bible, because obviously they don't. Um, Some people thought that they resembled leprous hands. And if you're a herbalist who thinks that the way a a food looks tells you what it will cure or what disease it will give you, that suggests that um, potatoes will give you leprosy. Uh, The fact that it's botanically part of the deadly nightshade family doesn't help either, because that means potatoes become uh, associated with witchcraft and the devil. So all of this adds up to really, you know, making it a very tough sell to get people to eat potatoes in Europe. They're quite happy to feed them to animals, they just don't want to eat them themselves.
0: This prejudice against potatoes was really unfortunate because they were an incredibly efficient source of nutrition. They were easy to grow, and they could grow in all sorts of conditions, and they grew very quickly. They were really a wonder crop. They produce more calories per acre than any other crop. But getting people to accept a strange new food no matter what a good idea it would be, can be a real challenge. Eating is a very delicate sphere of our personal life to intrude upon.
4: It's actually such an intimate thing, eating, isn't it? You're taking matter from outside of yourself, in the world, and putting it inside your body, through your mouth, this vulnerable, vulnerable part of your body. And the kind of trust that you need to do that, I can completely see... But if you hadn't ever been served a potato, that you could reject a potato as strange. So we can think about potatoes back then in Europe as a little bit
2: analogous to the meat substitutes we're seeing today. In both cases, you've got people saying, hey, we'd all be a lot better off if we ate more of this new thing over here and less of that old thing over there. It's easier to produce this new thing or it's a more reliable source of nutrition or it's healthier for you or whatever. And back in the 17th century, this is what led the powers that be, eminent scientists and royalty and other people in authority to urge people to eat more potatoes for the good of society.
0: And now it's various corners of modern society that are urging people to eat less animal meat for the good of their health, or for the good of the environment, or because they think killing animals is wrong. And these changes might make a ton of sense societally, but getting an individual person to adopt any new food, even one that turns out to be delicious, is always going to be tricky. I
4: mean, tomatoes, I mean, it's, it's, that's the one that just staggers me. For centuries, Italians had never eaten tomatoes. They got all of that kind of combination of sweetness and acidity that is so fundamental to Italian cuisine through the tomato. They would have once got through lemons and verjuice and various vegetables combined. And the tomato was seen as a poisonous vine. People thought it was going to make them very sick. Um, It was just, it seemed off-putting. People hated the smell of it. Um, All of those things which are so wonderful about a tomato seem dreadful at first.
2: I mean, if Italians were grossed out by tomatoes for hundreds of years, what hope is there to convince the average person to introduce a radical new food into his or her diet? And
0: what if that food is something much, much ickier than the tomato?
2: Okay, we're on the street in London, um, quite near where the Economist offices are, and we're outside a restaurant called Lao Cafe, which is the only place I know of in London where you can get edible insects. And they do them as bar snacks, so they've given us a takeaway portion here. And I've had these many times before, but Seth, have you ever eaten an insect, knowingly? I I have. Uh, In South
0: America, I tried some grubs, I think. I had ants in Mexico once, so I've done it before. I will say, looking at these crickets, which look very much like crickets it's just a pile of dead crickets in this little container you've got i'm less excited to pop this in my mouth than i was with with the veggie burger (laughs) that we had before
2: yeah you can you can see uh, they do look just like crickets that have been deep fried because that's what they are and um you can see the legs and you know all the bits are still there and all the sort of tentacly bits and yeah it's um i agree it's maybe not the world's most appetizing thing to a lot of people but you know we eat lots of things, we eat shrimps, we eat, I don't know, maybe it's not so different. Anyway, let's have a cricket. Yes. You grab one, I'll grab Down one. Down the
0: hatch, Tom, here okay. we go. Oh, God. Even just reaching in to <laughs> to pick out an individual cricket, I would like a very small one that's maybe a bit crushed and looks the least like a recognizable cricket as possible.
2: I oh, want God, a clutch I don't
0: one. even want to, oh, okay, I've got it. Okay.
2: Ready, <laughs> steady, go.
0: Insects are one of the things people talk about as a possible solution for replacing things like cow meat and chicken meat. Insects pack a lot of protein into a very small package, and raising them doesn't take up as much land or create the kind of emissions that raising cows does. But the idea of eating insects is still a little exotic for most of us in the Western world. Can we really convince big groups of people to eat bugs? Oh,
2: that's not bad at all. No, it's good, isn't it? It's it's a nutty taste. It's basically like chicken. It doesn't taste of anything. And it's a medium for the salt and the soy sauce and the spices they put on there. So yeah, I think it's great.
0: There are some entrepreneurs out there who are trying to make the case that bugs should be a big part of our diet. Laura Desaro is one of them. And for her, the mission began back when she was a college student and was traveling in Tanzania. And she got offered a fried caterpillar She thought it was delicious, it tasted like lobster. And that made her wonder why people in lots of parts of the world eat insects, but in the developed world, we mostly don't. When she got back home, she started wondering if she could change that.
3: Uh, I basically just got curious. And so I went and talked to my college roommate, And uh, we went to the pet store and brought back pretty much every kind of insects we could get our hands on. So different kinds of mealworms and crickets and fried them up uh, for our friends. We're so excited for them to try and uh, people were pretty freaked out. So the question then became okay, how do we get people over this ick factor and get them actually excited about eating this sustainable, healthy protein source, which has pretty much turned into the big question we've actually been trying to answer for the last five years.
0: This quest turned into a company called Chirps after Laura settled on crickets as the insect she would try to turn into a mainstream food.
3: Cricket powder tastes kind of nutty, a little earthy. Like, people often think we have seeds or nuts in our products, and they'll be like, nope, that's, that's the crickets
0: any kind of food that you're gonna put on grocery shelves, it's going to be regulated in some way or another. But the way that Laura's company has bumped up against food regulations really highlights our discomfort with the idea of insects as food.
3: When we first started, for example, uh, we had a hard time with the Massachusetts State Health Department. They kept telling us our job as the health department is to keep insects out of your food. And here you are trying to put insects in your food.
0: Crickets get raised on a cricket farm, which isn't like a regular farm. A cricket farm can be inside a building in a city with crickets in little tubs, instead of on lots of acres out in the country with big animals in pens and cages.
3: I think the best way to talk about crickets is actually to talk about livestock, to see what we're comparing it to.
0: One eye-opening stat is that if cows were a country, they'd be the planet's third largest greenhouse gas emitter, behind only China and the United States.
3: And another big one is that livestock farming is incredibly land intensive, so uses up to a third of arable land, up to half of the fresh water in the United States.
0: These are not small numbers that we're talking about here. And with insects, it's anywhere between 100 to 1,000 times better
3: in all these areas. So to produce a pound of beef, it takes over 2,000 gallons of water. To produce a pound of crickets, it takes about one gallon of water. They produce about 100 times fewer greenhouse gas emissions, use about 100 times fewer, less land, depending on, you know, exactly what calculations you're using.
0: So if you think of crickets as very small, very efficient livestock... This sounds pretty good. It's a nutrient-dense food that's high in protein and can be grown with less impact on the environment. That's terrific. So maybe insects are the potatoes of the 21st century. There's definitely an ick factor with insects. But as we learned, there was an ick factor with potatoes at first, and we overcame that. So potentially we could become comfortable with popping little insect legs and carapaces into our mouths. Um, Or Laura's idea is to grind them up into a powder, a cricket powder, so we're sort of less aware of what we're eating. But one of the reasons people are trying to move away from animal meat is because it slaughters lots of animals. And crickets, whatever you think of them, are animals. So what about the ethical side of eating crickets? On the one hand, they don't have pain receptors. But on the other hand, they're still living beings. Presumably, if you scale up Uh, this stuff, then you're going to be killing gazillions and gazillions of crickets. And does that give you pause? And do you think places like, you know, people for the ethical treatment of animals are eventually going to be coming in and defending crickets?
3: Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, one thing that actually did happen to us was early on, a group of Buddhists boycotted a store that we were in um, because they were thinking about crickets as each cricket having a soul. Uh, and you know, from that perspective, there's you know, there's no arguing. So a part a part of this does come down to personal choice.
0: So I guess each of us has to decide how we feel about snuffing out a cricket soul. Tom, does it give you any pause to murder thousands upon thousands of crickets? Yeah, if you're
2: worried about um grams of protein per death then you want to eat nothing but beef because you feed a lot of people with one cow (laughs) and the worst thing you can do is eat crickets and chickens but never mind Uh,
0: i also think i have already killed trillions of crickets every time i've mowed a lawn in the past so i think i've already i'm already going to cricket hell so let's say you don't want to kill any animals at all not even crickets but you still want to taste flesh it turns out there's a way to do that with science
1: Right. So, so the process is pretty simple. We take um, a, a biopsy from a cow uh, that has a small piece of uh, muscle tissue, and that muscle tissue has stem cells. And the stem cells can divide tremendously, can become millions and millions or trillions of stem cells, and they can produce muscle tissue, which is the basis of meat.
0: Mark Post is the chief scientific officer of a Dutch company called Mosa Meat, which is growing
1: cow meat in a lab. Basically, they extract a few cow cells and culture them in petri dishes. And in the end, we combine that muscle tissue and fat tissue into a patty to
0: make a hamburger. Tom, so far, most of meat's pretty small scale. They've been doing it for a few years and spending a lot of money, and they've made a total of four burgers, which is not going to feed a lot of people. But Sergey Brin of Google is an investor, and the company has very high expectations about how this is going to go.
2: Yeah, four burgers doesn't sound particularly impressive, but, you know, Google clearly has an ability to scale. Sergey Brin must see something here. And in fact, Mark Post says that he reckons he'll eventually be able to grow enough beef in one room to feed 10,000 people, which is pretty amazing. And if that's right, then this could potentially become, you know, a major source of meat, not just beef, of other sorts as well. And um, if you can really grow it in a small space like this in controlled lab conditions, then you've got a great business right there. And also, you'd be massively reducing the environmental impact of the current meat production industry.
0: The company says that surveys show people will be willing to eat meat that's grown in a lab. But if people think eating bugs is weird, it feels like it would be an even heavier lift to get people to eat lab-grown meat. There's something incredibly unnatural about eating a hunk of cow muscle that's been cultured
4: in a dish. Here's B. Wilson again. If you look at disgust as an emotion for human beings, we think it's associated with vegetables. But actually, for most humans, the thing that triggers disgust most forcefully is the idea of eating the wrong meat. So if you said to someone, monkey meat, oh, it's just that, actually, I, I can't even say that. It makes me... It makes me feel really, really strange. And um, I feel that lab meat fits, it currently fits into that category. She makes the comparison to monkey
0: meat. And the thing is, with lab-grown meat taken from cells, it would be possible to actually eat monkey meat without killing any monkeys. In fact, it would be possible to eat pretty much any animal. Cow meat is like the least weird meat you could grow in a lab once you start going down this road. So I've seen some speculation that once you start making lab-grown meat, you could potentially grow, like, panda meat or even human meat. Is that possible?
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I don't see the point, but it's possible, yeah. Uh, every creature um, who has stem cells in their muscle, uh, and so far we have seen that um, from from fish to any mammal, uh, you can potentially do this with My
0: experience with human nature is if you could eat panda meat, someone out there will want to eat panda meat. And and likewise, if you could eat human meat without harming any human,
1: someone will want to. Uh, Yeah, I I mean... um we are not going to do that. We are not going to engage in any of these activities, in endangered species or um, extinct species or um, or uh, cannibalism. We are not going to uh, engage in that. Uh, but I, I agree with you. I can see that other people uh, will do that, and and quite frankly, I don't see that much harm in it. You don't. How come? Because from a pure rational scientific point of view, there's no, um, you know, there's no difference in um, eating panda or eating, or eating cow meat if you so the, the the difference we see is something that's born out of tradition and custom and availability and, and also out of sort of um, uh, ethics but if you don't kill the the donor of your stem cells um, and don't harm the donor then the ethical aspect actually um, is no longer there so then I, I don't see any harm in it.
0: So Mark Post doesn't see any harm. But a lot of people might think eating human meat isn't kosher. And even if you just stick to growing cow meat, overcoming the weirdness of eating a lab-grown meat will still be a major hurdle for lots of folks. With both insects and lab-grown meat,
2: I think the big concern is people are just not going to be willing to eat this stuff because they think it's icky. And that's exactly the problem that faced the potato when it first came to Europe. So it's worth examining how the potato overcame the ick factor and became a food that was not only more efficient than what came before it, but also became a completely normal and even delightful thing to eat. Tom, the
0: potato ends up triumphing in Europe. Huge success, eaten everywhere by everyone. And I think there were three reasons why that happened. First and most important was that they were just such an efficient crop.
2: Yeah, once they'd bred new potato varieties that were suited to the European climate, you can get four times the number of calories from the same amount of land by growing potatoes instead of grain. And they're pretty effortless to grow as well. You basically bury them in the right kind of soil and let them sit there. And the potatoes only take three or four months to mature compared with 10 months for grain. So this improvement in efficiency, just the rate at which you can produce useful calories, was too overwhelming to ignore. In
0: fact, the potato is so efficient, even compared to modern wonder foods, that NASA has considered the potato as a potential food source on future Mars missions. It's just an amazing crop. But let's move on to the second reason the potato caught on, which was influencers. There were some
2: influential people who pushed the potato on everybody else and really made the potato happen. Yeah, and the most famous potato influencer was a Frenchman called Antoine-Augustin Parmentier. And he was a French scientist and he served as a pharmacist in the French army. And he was fighting in a war against the Prussians and he ended up in a jail. And he spent three years in prison, basically. And for much of that time, he was given nothing except potatoes to eat. And of course, at the time, everyone thought potatoes were terrible. And if you ate them, terrible things would happen. But he noticed, that actually he was thriving on this all-potato diet. So he realised they were actually a perfectly nourishing and healthy food. And when the war ended and he returned to France, he became the potato's most vocal advocate. And he does a whole load of experiments and he tries to sort of encourage the adoption of the potato, not just within the scientific community, but he starts having dinners where he invites people round and prepares lots and lots of different potato dishes. And so this is demonstrating that these things aren't going to hurt you, they're not poisonous, they're not bad for you, and he finally manages to persuade the Sorbonne University, which had ruled that potatoes were unfit for human consumption, to reverse their position. And this is, a, this is a big breakthrough as well. And these dinner parties where he serves the different potatoes, one of the guests is supposed to be Benjamin Franklin, who tries these potatoes and loves them. And he becomes another influencer. He goes back to America and says, hey, have you heard about these potatoes? And the rest is history. And this brings me to
0: the third reason the potato caught on which is the invention of what you, Tom, would call a chip and I would call a French fry. Because apparently it was the French fry that really sealed the deal for Benjamin Franklin when he got to try one.
2: Yes, it's a lot easier to get a food to catch on if you can figure out how to prepare it in a way that's just like irresistibly tasty. Here's B. Wilson again.
4: And then suddenly the French discover that actually the potato is the most wonderful, delicious thing and find half a dozen superb ways of cooking it. And it becomes normal, and every day, and people develop a taste for it. And once you have a taste for something, and it's normal, and it tastes of home, then you can't imagine it not being normal. The potato became
0: delicious, and it tasted of home, and you couldn't imagine it not being normal. I think that's actually where a lot of people are with animal meat these days. It's delicious, and it feels like the most normal thing to eat. But when you step back and think about it, it's really a pretty strange thing that we have these industrial slaughterhouses where we kill animals to feed ourselves. How did we get here? How did meat become what it means to us today? Ethan Brown is the founder of Beyond Meat, which makes veggie burgers out of protein that comes from peas. The company has been successful at getting its products into major restaurants and grocery chains, And after its IPO this year, the company's stock shot up, with Beyond Meat reaching a valuation of $6 billion. Ethan Brown's key premise is that you can create a better meat by cutting out the middleman, or in this case, the middle cow.
5: Our fundamental question is, do you need to run plant material and water through an animal to produce meat? Or can you start with that plant material and start with water? And build meat directly from plants. And so, when you actually begin to study meat, it's very clear that at a macro level, meat is five things: it's amino acids, it's lipids, it's trace minerals, it's trace vitamins, and it's predominantly water—a lot like our bodies. That's not by coincidence. And so, what we're doing is saying, if you can skip the animal, and you can obviate all these questions of, of you know, climate impact. Um, natural resource impact, you know, human health. Again, all these epidemics around, you know, whether it's the heart disease or diabetes or cancer associated with red meat, processed meat at certain levels. uh, And you can sidestep the animal welfare question simply by producing meat directly from plants. Why wouldn't you do that?
0: So you can pretty closely replicate the chemical makeup of meat. And these burgers also come pretty close to the taste and texture of meat. So what's missing? Well, there's something more complicated about the place that meat holds in our history and in our imaginations. And even Brown has thought a lot about that.
5: If you think about the um, evolution of our own bodies, for example, you cannot uh, discount the role that animal protein played in, in the very structure of, uh, of, of the human body. Think about being in the savanna uh, and discovering a cliff Bar, for example. You know, it, was, it was that kind of nutrient density uh, that really made an impact on our bodies.
2: It seems that for our ancestors, adding more meat to their diets, first by scavenging dead animals and then later by hunting, actually changed the way we evolved. It changed us physically. Uh, it was a very powerful kind of food, and it allowed our brains to get much bigger.
0: And meat didn't just change physiology. Meat became so important that we began to develop emotions around meat. Think about the fact that some chimpanzees have been known to trade meat for sex. And then think about what's going on when one person buys another person a steak dinner
5: on a date. We, we ascribe a much higher value to meat than just the nutritional benefit that we get from it. And it has to do with the, you know, the historical scarcity of it, the danger associated with getting it, the attributes that a human had to have to be a good hunter. All of those things are wrapped into a piece of meat in a way that, that you know, even in our modern society are hard to disentangle.
0: Ethan Brown is adamant about the nomenclature with this, that his
2: plant-based product isn't fake meat or substitute meat. It's just meat. And I think he's got history on his side here. If you look at the origin of the word meat, it's an Old English word that means food or a piece of food or nourishment. So he's right.
0: It's funny how these terms can be such loaded signifiers. A word like milk has so much meaning for us that when we make a viscous beverage out of almonds or soy or oats, we still call it milk, because cow milk is a comfortable, recognizable thing for us.
2: And now it turns out there's a multibillion-dollar race going on to do the same thing with eggs, making an egg that isn't really an egg.
0: And here's the question this raises for me. If the point is to invent a better food, then why are we still stuck on this idea of making these ersatz versions of foods we already know? Why not just some futuristic new food? If the if the end goal is, is basically just a more efficient kind of, of food... Um, th- that's better for the planet, why couldn't it be something radically different that we, you know, we, we, we don't even really imagine as food right now? Why, how come we're wedded to this paradigm of, of the burger, of this familiar kind of thing?
5: Yeah, that's a great question. My own mother asked me that question a lot and sort of like, why are you so focused on making it just like meat? Why don't you just make a great source of protein for the center of the plate? And she's not alone in asking that. You know? And, and uh, all I can say is that I know that people love meat. You know, the vast majority of the population consumes meat. And I've joked before that, you know, you, you can rely on the human race to do three things over time. You know, they're going to fight wars, they're going to eat animals, and they're going to procreate. And, you know, we should, we should probably continue on one of those and try to lessen <laughs> the other two. And, uh, and I think, you know, we know what meat tastes like. We know it has nutritional benefit to us. Uh, so why confuse the situation by providing something entirely different?
2: Well, I think if you're going to get people to change their habits, then you probably need these imitation foods like the Beyond Burger to provide a sort of stepping stone and a smooth transition to eating entirely new forms of food. But I think you probably need this kind of thing to get people started.
0: Yeah, and when you talk to these people making meat replacements, that's basically their answer. They're saying this is the way we can realistically shift people with, you know, by giving them something familiar. There's definitely something to that. But I also think there's something more primal about why we want to eat something that reminds us of meat instead of just eating some super-efficient pill or protein shake. I think eating meat triggers these very deeply submerged feelings in us that have to do with asserting our dominance over other animals and confirming our place at the top of the food chain. And I think there's something powerful about that. And in a small way, we're accessing that emotion whenever we bite into a burger. B. Wilson agrees with me
4: it's a tyranny. It's it's Homeric. We're kind of, we're celebrating and roasting something to kind of express the fact that we are the ones who have won. Um, yeah, I don't know if I like that primal feeling about it. And yet clearly I do because I'm still, I can never quite figure out why I'm not vegetarian, except that there is something about, I mean, for me, it would be things like a chicken pie and it's, and you can make a nice vegetable pie, but it's not quite the same.
0: Tom, if you had to make a bet right now on on which of these replacements has an edge, who do you think is in the
2: lead? Well, we've got this problem with insects that there are lots of rules about trying to keep insects out of the food chain, off the shelves, off our plates. So it may take a while to get those rules changed. And then obviously the lab meat is still very expensive and the volume of production is very, very low. So I think you've probably got to favor the plant-based substitute meats at this stage. And uh, they do seem to be having their moment in the sun.
0: Yeah. And in terms of sliding people from animal meat to something that's going to still feel familiar, on on the one hand, I mean, a a plant-based meat is, you know, we're all familiar with vegetables and plants and that's not too weird. And and a lab-grown meat seems weirder. On the other hand, the lab-grown meat is trying to identically, you know, perfectly replicate the animal meat. So maybe you could say that that's going to be the more comfortable transition for people because there's just no difference at all in what they're eating. And there's also this new weird combo where some people think the answer is to grow insect meat, but to do that in labs kind of brings it all together. Well, just like the potato needed some influencers to help it along and needed to convince people it could taste really good. I think any of these meat substitutes that's going to succeed will have to show people that it tastes great and it will maybe need some key endorsements to get everybody on board. So to think about how this is all going to play out and some of the unintended consequences that we might not be thinking about right now, let's go back to the potato again and what happened after it finally triumphed in Europe. The potato was this incredible gift for Europe, the wonderful nutrition and efficiency of it. Famously, in Ireland, it allowed the Irish population to go from 500,000 in 1660 to 9 million in 1840, And that's almost entirely driven by the use of the potato as food. So this is great news for meat alternatives, right? If you can make a more nutritious food like the potato and feed people in a better way,
2: you're guaranteed a happy ending. What could possibly go wrong? Well, of course, we know what went wrong in Ireland with potatoes. In the autumn of 1845 there was a potato famine. It was expected to have been a bumper crop that year. It was uh, two and a half million acres had been planted with potatoes. uh, And instead, it was a total loss. When the potato crop failed, they didn't have any money that they could use to buy anything else because this is a non-cash economy. And because potatoes were pretty much the only thing that people had to eat in Ireland, this had really terrible consequences. I mean, the scale of the, the devastation, the starvation, was unlike anything that had been seen in Europe since the Black Death. And the potato crop failed again in 1846, and people just stopped planting them after that because they didn't think it was going to work. So there was just starvation on a massive scale. About a million people died of starvation, and another million people left Ireland, emigrated as a result of the potato famine. The potato famine
0: highlights one of the possible dangers when you start trying to do social engineering with food, and particularly when you decide there's a wonder food that can solve all your problems, and you become totally reliant on that food. So, when we think about what could replace meat, maybe the most important answer is not a monoculture. We need lots of things, diverse approaches. Let a thousand different kinds of new food bloom. Besides, it'll be more fun that way. Even Mark Post, the extremely hyper rational, hyper scientific lab meat guy, thinks it would be a shame if we just crammed our nutrition into a pill.
1: Uh, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because that would take uh, quite a bit of fun out of life, um, fun out of cooking and fun out of eating together. Um, I mean, eating and, and nutrition is not only just uh, chemistry. In my mind, it's you know, in the digital era, it's it's kind of the last excuse to get together and uh, and interact at a physical level. So I, I hope not, but uh, scientifically it could.
0: I'm Seth Stevenson. And I'm Tom Standig. The Secret History of the Future is a joint production of Slate and The Economist. It's produced by Bart Warshaw and
2: Kate Holland. The senior producer for Slate Podcasts is TJ Raphael. The senior managing producer for Slate Podcasts is June Thomas. The executive producers are Gabriel Roth, the editorial director for Slate Podcasts, and Anne McElvoy, head of audio at The Economist. And thanks to Merit Jacob, technical director at Slate. If you haven't
0: already, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And leave us a review so you can help others find the show, too. Thanks for listening.